0: Dude. We are going to energise the country. Stop Brexit. No more, Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order. Hello and welcome to the Debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Judith Bunting, uh, who is a uh, television producer and former member of the European Parliament for South East England. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, thank you for having me. Nice to be here.
0: Um, So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is what first made you want to be involved in um, active politics, standing uh, for election? In particular, what made you want to be a candidate for the Liberal Democrats?
1: I was a very, very late starter. And a number of people were very surprised when I got involved in politics. In fact, um, when I bumped into a very old, an old BBC friend uh, at the rail station in Newbury some years later, um, she said, I would have been less surprised if you told me you were a lesbian. Um, basically, I'd been, uh, you know, I'd been at the BBC. I didn't have political views that I voiced very much. I am a science journalist, so I was interested in finding out what the facts were. And um, less bothered by uh, politics at all. And then we had the crash. And then I just found myself being angry. So it's about, 2000, about 2010, coming up to 2008, 9, 10. And I paid more attention and I got angry. And... A piece of advice for youngsters. I, a piece of advice I was given um, uh, as a youngster was work with the smartest boy in the room. And I thought, well, if this politics is getting under my skin, then who is the smartest boy in the room, as far as I have access to? And I happen to live in Twickenham, and Vince Cable was my MP. Um, I voted for Vince for years. I've never really. It took me a long while to work out what an Earth a Liberal Democrat was. Um, and I can come on to that later if you want to. Um, but I realized that that's, that's what I was. They believe what I believe. So I went and just started joining and helping, you know, I delivered leaflets. I helped at the, um, little local fate, um, and, and just got drawn in. And the Lib Dems certainly, once you get anywhere close to them, if you're showing an active interest, then they don't let you go very far. Um, and before I knew it, I was helping. I acted as driver in the Felton by-election for Roger Crouch, who was a great candidate, but we never stood any chance of coming in anywhere more than third in that election. But he needed an aide and a driver. Um, so basically, I drove him around and fed him bananas. Um, but it was the first time I knocked on doors. And it was absolutely seminal because I realized that we were talking to people who were as politically ignorant as I had been for most of my life. I tell you, most people don't know who their councillor is. Um, Most people do not know what ward they live in. And um, all of us, me too now, um, working in politics and being interested in politics, we live in this delusional world where we think everybody cares about politics all the while. And honestly, people don't. But the people, the doors we were knocking on, people had needs and had concerns and had problems and nobody was helping them. And some of the issue was that they couldn't articulate their problem very clearly. Um, and they didn't know which services to go to. They didn't know what questions to ask. Um, and we all have moments like that. But I just remember standing on one doorstep step, step thinking, it doesn't matter whether I'm politically ignorant, which was my fear at this point. I can communicate. I can talk to people. I have had a career asking questions. I know how to research. I can actually help people. You know, I could be useful here. Um, so so I decided to be a candidate. Um, yeah. And moved out to Newbury because I could commute from Newbury to London. And it's a lovely place. And my husband had been born there. So I didn't know it ever so well, but I knew it a bit and I liked it. Um, and well, I stayed in Newbury, I stood for two elections and was there for eight years or so. It was lovely.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, standing in um, Newbury in 2015 and 2017. How different was that in terms of campaigning to um, when you were standing as the uh, Liberal Democrats MEP candidate for the South East in 2019?
1: Oh, that's a really good question because it completely highlights the difference between the two electoral systems. So, as the candidate in a Westminster election, the. Um, when you're a new candidate, for sure, your biggest issue is name recognition. So even if people like, I mean, I was in a place where David Rendell had been a very, very good um, lived MMEP for years. So although it was Tory at the time I moved there, um, people knew what a successful Liberal Democrat representation could be. So they weren't totally anti, but they didn't know me. They didn't know my name. So you are working madly on name recognition. Excuse me. <clears throat> you're working madly on name recognition, on making sure they understand who you are and what you stand for. It's very um, personal focused for 50 percent of the time. And the rest of the time, it's party messages. When you're standing or when you're working with a European group, I mean, the reason that I put myself forward for Europe was not. To get elected. And I know people think I'm just being, you know, modest, but I'm not. I expected to end up number five or six on the list. And the reason I did it was that I thought Anthony Hook should get elected as our number two. We were pretty confident we'd get Catherine Bearder in again. And oh, in the European elections in 2014 in Newbury, we had had a hustings and. You know, there are lots of hustings. The South East of England is a big place. So the top candidates had to spread themselves really thinly. And we'd ended up with a guy in our hustings who was number five or six on the Lib Dem list. And lovely guy. It was absolutely hopeless. And, you know, I nearly voted green at the end of that elect, uh, that, that hustings because our guy did not put up a good fight. So I thought, again, I know how to talk. So I will stand. I'll get on the list. And if I'm number five or six, I can still go out and do a respectable hustings. And what happened was I ended up number three on the list. And to go back to your question about what's the difference in the campaigning, the campaigning had absolutely nothing to do with who I was. In fact, I acted as a a political organiser for the campaign. I didn't bother. I didn't knock on a single door. I delivered. I dropped off and delivered bundles of leaflets to people to deliver. I was the person I I ran the campaign in, in Newbury and West Berkshire. But with a couple of friends, we just made sure that we got as much literature out as possible. But it's all party. It's all about your principles and your vision and you as an individual. Don't matter. Um, I mean, maybe Catherine Bearder matters because people have heard of her. Um, and having been elected, maybe I would matter more if, it, if you know, we were fortunate enough to be going through European elections again. But as a first timer, um, you can't communicate your identity and your beliefs to the whole of the southeast of England. It's completely unrealistic. So, um, so it's just a totally different campaign, totally different campaigning strategy. And it's all comes back to the joy of proportional representation.
0: Um, You mentioned, obviously, the the different voting systems, but um, also as well, one of the differences between um, the European Union and uh, the British Parliament is the the, the structure of um, the European Union with the way that the the Parliament and, and, and the Council are structured. Was that something at all when when you um, were elected and did uh, go to the European Parliament? Was that something that was at all confusing or or did it seem natural in the way that it was was structured?
1: The, The business about the Council of Europe and the European Council, and one of them is EU and one of them isn't. And I'm really sorry, I'm two, three months out of practice now and I forget which one's which. But there's the group of the leaders... And we never have anything to do with them. I mean, they meet and they argue and they agree things. And then I suppose that filters down and helps direct the way that the way the commission operates. Um, but they have nothing to do with us. The council of ministers, I found very confusing at first. Again, we don't have much to do with them directly, but I had a much clearer idea of what the council of ministers could do. But it kept on. It just never quite made sense that. Because different people always seem to be representing England on the Council of Ministers, Britain rather, UK, on the Council of Ministers. And it wasn't until after I arrived in Brussels that I understood that the Council of Ministers varies, that the makeup of it varies depending on what subject is under question. So if you've got an edge... Uh, a discussion of transport then it's the ministers of transport from all the member states who get together to talk transport if it's a energy issue then the ministers for energy the secretaries of state for energy from all of the member states get together and talk about stuff and suddenly once i understood that things fell into place Because, oh, way, 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 way way back, like 2010, no, after 2010, end of 2010, um, I went to a fundraising do where Ed Davey was, Um, and it was just, you know, sausages in front of a fire and hear what our Secretary of State for Energy's got to say, and he was so, so nice, but he also was talking about how, as Secretary of State for Energy, he had the privilege of going to Europe and working with other energy ministers. And he didn't wait for anybody to change the laws or to have the commission do something. He just found the energy ministers who were like-minded. And he talked to them about renewable energies and how they could all work together to improve things. And that is how... They managed to that, – that sort of kick-started the move of, of renewable energy across Europe, but particularly in Britain, such that by the time we got to 2015 – oh, campaign line coming out now – but he had doubled the um, investment and tripled the generation of wind-powered energy. He did amazing things. We got to about 5% of the UK's energy being produced by renewable resources. This is back in 2015. I mean, I think it's better than that now. I haven't checked. But but I never understood how he could do that. And that's being part of the Council of Ministers. And then you have the Commission and then you have us, the Parliament. Um, and sometimes, well, the Parliament is an extraordinary place and, um, and it operates in a completely different way to Westminster, which I think is just the way that the world should be run. Go on, ask me about that, because it's just the most constructive way I can imagine any government ever working, and it gets the best out of everybody.
0: Well, um, do you think that the way that it is run is something that we should copy in in, in Britain? Do you think it's something that we would be able to copy in Britain in terms of our parliament?
1: Well, it's an interesting question, and I think it would come down to the national temperament, but... If you look at Westminster, you have a government and they govern. And everybody else is what's respectfully known as a backbencher, which is to say somebody who represents their part of the country, which is a good thing. You know, we want our representatives there, but they're not involved in decision making. So so you get the to and fro, the back and forth, the oppositional um, confrontational politics that we know. Because they're not invested in it, not invested in, in government. So even if it's something relatively non-political, like science policy, or well, health policy is increasingly political, isn't it? But um, even if it's something where people broadly could agree on what is the right thing to do, because two-thirds of the chamber, half the chamber, is simply not involved in getting anywhere close to policy making they can throw stones at it. And because it's oppositional politics, they will throw stones at it. It's guaranteed. Whereas in Europe, so we sit in that huge chamber and I had the joy of sitting directly opposite the president. So talk about being a centre party. I was about as centre as you could get. I mean, that's just the joy of um, an accident of alphabetical order within your group, but I still quite liked it. Um, So... If you looked at, obviously, I don't know whether people do know this, um, as the Liberal Democrats, we are part of the Liberal group that operates across Europe, and these groups basically bring the different parties from the different member states together to make things manageable. So there is um, Renew Europe was our group, and that is essentially an association of, of democr- liberal democratic groups across Europe. And then you have the socialists, you have the centre conservatives, you have the right conservatives, and then you have the fascists off on the right, and the um, then you go from on the left and this is all from the president's perspective on the left you've got the socialists and then the greens and then the very very lefty greens Um, and every time we took a vote it isn't just about the voting it's about the whole policy making but when there is a policy up for voting we all get a vote if you want your policy to pass then you have to make sure that enough people in other parties are on side because everybody's vote matters. There is no quote-unquote government. It is Parliament there making policy and um, and voting en masse. So sometimes, as centrists, we'd be supporting um, green... Po- well, we always supported green policies. Um, we didn't ex- support the more extreme ones, but we supported green policies. We supported, I'd say, about 50% of the social democrat um, uh, policies and amendments that went forward probably i don't know 30 to 40 percent of the center right ones the epp and then it fades off so ecr we rarely agreed with them and if you knew that the far right people had gone anywhere near a policy or amendment you didn't touch it Um, because even if the words looked okay on paper there'd be a, a bomb hidden in there somewhere and that's a metaphorical bomb i'm not trying to be provocative um so so we never supported anything put forward by a hungarian fascist you just you don't, you don't want to encourage them. But what all of this means thats is, is that in the course of policymaking, everybody's invested. It doesn't mean they all agree, but everybody's invested. So one person, one party will lead, but everybody has a chance to put amendments forward. Everybody has a chance to discuss it. And then everybody has a vote that either puts it in or out of... Um, in or out of operation, which is quite similar to Westminster, but because everybody has, take, has had the opportunity to take part in it, you don't get the um, you don't get the extreme oppositional politics, and it's very very satisfying and constructive.
0: Do you think that um, part of the issue with the way that uh, the European Union and the the, the Elements to it, the, the Parliament and, and, and the Commission and the Councils. Uh, do you think that part of the problem with the way that this has been debated in the UK is that it hasn't been perhaps fully relayed to the British public how exactly the different parts of the European Union work? And that is why we've seen Brexit.
1: Oof, I, I think. One of the reasons that it's... Yeah, I, I would castigate the media for not covering Europe as standard bread-and-butter news for years and years, like for the past 30, 40 years that we've been there. Um, the main problem with Brexit is that people were uninformed. And when I, I'm not being patronising when I say people. Um, I was uninformed. And it took standing for Parliament and getting elected for me to really understand it. And that's terrible. I mean, one of the... Um, uh, I was involved in legislation right at the very end. On the final day I was there, I was still taking amendments to a piece of legislation. Um, and we can come back, ask me about that later. But it was um, relating to the European Institute of Technology and setting their strategy for the next seven years. I was a science journalist for, oh, more years than I care to say in public. I had never heard of the European Institute of Technology. Now, you can say that that's, you know, I was obviously a bad journalist because I never looked for them but I didn't know they were there to be looked for so there's something wrong Europe doesn't publicize itself very well I don't think and the media on the whole I mean I wasn't a political journalist so I do cut myself a little bit of slack there but the media just did nobody any favors by simply never talking about it other than the joyous Boris Johnson who made a joke of it all and the other problem is that because it's not oppositional there is no there's very rarely any news no headline grabbing visceral news. What there is is a lot of quite interesting, quite important stuff which is never going to be on the front page so but it still should have been Europe and our place in Europe should have been on the I don't know third page fourth page fifth page um, of All newspapers for years and years and years. And then we could have gotten to, gotten into the um, soap opera, if you like, so that people recognize names, um, in the way that now, but again, I am so in the political bubble now. It's hard to keep perspective, but people have heard of Michel Barnier. People have heard of Guy Verhofstadt and, and they have become names that it's worth the newspaper writing about because people recognise them. Um, but as I say, people, I, I don't know, you know, how big's the bubble of people um, who would know that. They are both very impressive characters, by the way.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, the piece of legislation you were working on on the last day. And I, I, yeah. I, just, I just wondered, was that something that perhaps seemed a bit odd to be working on a piece of legislation as Britain was formally leaving the European Union. And, and there was, of course, a lot of, on that day, a lot of um, headline grabbing from uh, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party and how they uh, acted on that day. D- do you think that sort of like demonstrates the, the weird way that we look at the European Union and the way that it operates?
1: Well, the mere fact that you're talking about Farage and headline grabbing I don't know what he did until the evening. During the day, there was "Old lang syne was sung in the parliament. And I have to say that was that was a, a, a movement of good feeling from our colleagues on all sides. Um, but the other reason, and I think I can say this sort of thing in public now, but it was also designed so that everybody stood up so that if Farage and Co started to stand up to try and wave flags or something, nobody would see them because the rest of the 700 odd strong parliament would be standing up and singing. So people were aware that he was going to be trying for things like that. But isn't it sad forgive me, I'm not criticising you, but just the situation that even someone politically interested like you remembers Farage, doesn't remember that all of Europe, left, right, green, you know, centre, all stood up and sung old um, lang syne because they didn't want us to be leaving. Um, and we all stood up, and the Conservatives stood up, and we stood up, and the Lib Dem stood up, and the Labour MEP stood up, the Green MEP stood up. We didn't want to to leave, um, but that doesn't get reported because that's that's not man its dog, is it? Um, Farage did manage a uh, David and Goliath status, and you know people go for that, um, which is a
0: great shame. Do you think that uh, you mentioned the sort of like the, the the David and Goliath status? Do you think that that's part of the reason that um, we didn't see a second referendum? That the way that it was. The, the first referendum was painted was that if there had been a second referendum it would have been the establishment stamping on uh, the voters on the, the quote-unquote little map
1: yeah I wonder I mean I did a hustings at the Isle of Wight um, and it was very lively and we had people in it was the first hustings that I did in the euro campaign and the Brexit Party was still coming out to do hustings. I mean, it was the only time I ever saw the Brexit Party coming out to do hustings. If you remember, they were—they're um, not a political party; they're a business. So you couldn't be a member; you had to be a client. Or uh, and they would—it it was very odd the way that they were painted. Anyway, the upshot was they hadn't got a manifesto and they hadn't got hadn't got a full set of policies. But they came out, uh, took part in these hustings. Half of the people in the room easily. And this is a small theater. Um, So half the people in the theater were were pro-Brexit and half were anti-Brexit. And the audience spent as much time shouting at each other as they did at us, which was great. I mean, it, it was a lively, healthy debate. I got approval from both sides when I went through my reasoning for why we should have a second referendum, because I felt that none of us None of us had understood properly what the vote was about. And although there's still a fair chance that many of us didn't understand what the vote was about, we were all for how many years? Three years better informed. And therefore, we stood a better chance of our vote reflecting our honest views. And I said then, there and then, if this goes against me, I will shut up and stop campaigning. I will, you know, I will totally accept it. Will We make it a legal referendum because, of course, the first one wasn't. People didn't harp on about it, but the first one wasn't a legal referendum. It was only advisory. And that is because the nature of Brexit hadn't been defined. And that was another big thing that came through as the campaigns developed and led up to the um, to the euro elections is that we realised there were so many different kinds of Brexit and ways that Brexit could go. So what we needed was for the government to pick one, define it legally, you know, just the... Side of A4. I mean, obviously there's a bigger document. Give us a side of A4 that we can all read it and understand. What you have in mind when you ask us to take this vote, and then we can all vote on it. And I got approval from the um, from the Brexiteers as well, because although they wanted out, some of them wanted a customs union, some didn't want a customs union, some wanted a hard Brexit, some wanted a soft Brexit. No. Um, there were all the different infinite varieties of Brexit. I still think that um I still think that would have been better for the country. If they'd done that, then then it's like um remainers like me would have nowhere to go, whereas at the moment there's still a feeling that okay, Boris got a, a clear majority. But we know on the doorstep that people were voting Corbyn Johnson. they were not voting Europe, not Europe. So we're being taken out. But I don't think it reflects the views of the majority of British
0: people. You mentioned the uh, Corbyn-Johnson uh, part of the, the last election. Do you think that the um, leadership of Keir Starmer will change that dynamic at the next election? Do you think that Europe will be as much of an issue at the next election?
1: Uh, I suspect it won't be at the next election. I mean, the truth is that, and I've said this at Remain meetings, we have, there's no point saying we need to be back in Europe yet. We, We all know that we want to be there, but... Let's let a few years go down the line. Part of that is because Europe has been um, heavily stressed by this. And frankly, they've had enough. And if we just go back and start trying to campaign again to go in, I think they'd laugh, frankly. And that's even our friends. Um, the other thing is we'll never get as good a deal again. Um, so you would have to look carefully at what was possible that means that it's unlikely to raise its head again as a big electoral issue in the next... Well, it depends. You know, if if the Johnson government fails next year and we have another general election, who knows, maybe. But, you know, that's a little bit extreme. If we look at five years down the line, four years down the line, then, um, then it won't be a big deal. But as for Keir Starmer changing the nature of debate, I have high hopes. And I have high hopes because... I don't know if you remember. Um, he was the director of public prosecutions. Mm-hmm. That was his last last job before he joined politics. And although I'm not politic, or I hadn't been involved in politics, I always listened to the Today programme. And every so often, this guy would turn up, and he would make sense. And he would be in dis- you know on crime discussions and, and anti-social behaviour discussions, and he always made sense. And to the extent that I made a point of making sure I listened and remembered his name, and then when he stood down as DPP to be honest, I was on the um, on email to our head office straight away going who's going who's going to go around and talk to him? We have to get this man he's he's he makes sense he's thoughtful he cho- you know he considers things carefully and then he comes out with something which um which just feels right. Anyway, he's now their leader, and I'm not a Labour Party member, but I am watching this space with great interest because so far he's been very canny in the way he's put his um, cabinet together. He's kept in some, you know, he's got some Blairites in there. He's got some Corbynites in there. Um, He's got some people who haven't been involved before in there. And I think we stand a fair chance that he might actually bring the Labour Party into what I would call sensible ground
0: again. Um, You talk about him bringing the Labour Party uh, to to a sensible ground. And people have um, suggested that perhaps uh, at the next election, uh, Keir Starmer might make some sort of uh, pact or... Um, may work more closely with uh, the Liberal Democrats than uh, previous leaders of the Labour Party. Would that be something that you be been favour of? It, that's a really tricky one.
1: And um, right, I'm out of politics and I'm not expecting to stand again. So I think, again, am I allowed to say these things? Basically, if you look at the um, if you look at where the Lib Dems are in second place and we are in second place in so many places now um and we're within a couple of thousand votes in far I can't remember the numbers but but far more seats than we ever used to be but a number of them are um places like Woking and indeed Newbury where the Labour Party are nowhere it's Tories versus Lib Dems and that means you have to have a lot of soft conservatives voting for you. Um, you, need, you need a lot of solid liberal Democrats. You need a lot of soft La- Labour members voting for you. But that's the only way that Lib Dems win is bringing people over from other parties. And if we actually made a formal pact with Labour, I think it would be death. So. For all my respect for Keir Starmer, I think that would be a very bad um, strategic idea. Working more closely, that doesn't seem unreasonable. Um, and if you think about how Paddy Ashdown and Tony Blair, they got on well, you know, and they could discuss strategies and ideas and so on. Um, admittedly, you know, Tony Blair rather let us down once he got into government. But it was still, I see, more of a, a relationship like that if we have, say, Ed Davey and Keir Starmer, who can talk together as reasonable people rather than having oppositional politics all the along. Um,
0: now, you've mentioned throughout uh, the, the podcast that you have uh, previously worked as a, a science journalist and uh, as a producer of science programmes. And, of course... Science has very much been at the uh, forefront of politics at the moment recently because of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. How well do you think the government have been handling this pandemic? And how well do you think they've been presenting the science uh, related to the disease?
1: I was very interested to see the presentation um, last week where they defined R. And I thought that was quite ambitious. Not because it's that complicated, but to take the time and trouble to speak to our population like we're adults. I, I, I like that. I respected that. Um, and I think it will help them in the long run. Um, I should also say I cut the government. A lot of slack, because this is an utterly unprecedented situation. And if you look at all the data, you look at, I don't know if you use the Worldometer website, but it gives you all the data from countries all around the world. Obviously, it depends on how good the reporting is. Um, But Sweden hasn't had a lockdown at all, and they're sort of doing OK. I look at deaths per million. I don't look at total deaths. Um, But deaths per million, in the worst in Europe isn't the UK, it's Belgium. Far and away, Belgium. deaths per million in Belgium is at least a couple of hundred higher than in even Spain. Um, Spain, then Italy, and then it's the UK. It would have been good to have us down with Germany, but that's impossible because we didn't have the tests or the testing facilities or the access to testing that they had. They have Roche. Roche is the sort of te- are the testing gurus, and they're on German soil, ready to go. So, so that really. Frankly, it's a good reason for not winding down our manufacturing and research facilities. Um, uh, Maybe we should build them up again in the future. So I don't think what our government did was perfect. We were a few days later than most of Europe in bringing in. We were certainly one of the last countries to bring in lockdown. Um, I think it was us in Denmark were the last in Europe. If you, what that means though is that we were three days later than some people, maybe five days later than some, another, another country. Um, this isn't weeks. Now, a lot can happen in five days. If you've got a, a an hour of one to two or one to three, or, Two or three, I suppose. Um, then a lot can happen in two or three days. But equally, they had to look at whether the UK people and the British people would, would frankly behave. And I think if they'd tried to bring it in any earlier, they would have had more trouble with people objecting to being pushed around. Now, I will cut that some slack. What I won't, or oh, don't, want to be sympathetic to at all is the um, right-wing business people behind the scenes pushing to end lockdown early. Now, we can probably phase lockdown out safely soon. Um, but it's going to have to be very, very gentle. I mean, yesterday they said we've got R down to 0.5 to 0.9. Well, hey, that's not very, very informative, is it? I mean, 0.6 is a hell of a lot different to 0.9. Um, so in some ways that told us everything and nothing and as a journalist i've sat in press conferences um i remember oh years ago now when i was very new on the job i went to a press conference with shell about the brent spa do you remember it was an oil platform that was going to be dismantled and we were given all the information everything we could possibly want but i mean we were given all of the information and anything you wanted to know was buried among mountains and mountains of information so i would say beware of transparency because it can just mean that they if they don't want you to know something you'll never know it um what we need is people who are willing to share their ideas and their reasoning because they understand it's the right thing to do one of my most concerning one of the things that concerns me most at the moment is that they are refusing to publish minutes from the um, scientific advisory groups meetings um and we haven't this isn't opposition politicians objecting to this this is the editor of the lancet and doctors across the uk saying we don't know who is giving advice and we don't know what advice is being given and now the the government's own Um, advisory notes and advice for meetings like this is that the identity of people can be kept anonymous because you don't want laymen, if you like, um, getting um, political flack because the the other side don't like their views. However, they should be publishing minutes and minutes should be published as soon as possible. And at the moment, um, the promise is that the minutes will be published after the pandemic is over. And that worries me that, that that's take that's lack of transparency you know, with knobs on. And that means that you can you could have the possibility where people are taking decisions that are counter to advice and we would never know it.
0: Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast. It's been uh, great to speak to you, um, Judith. And I've got one final question. Uh, we're recording this on uh, VE day. It's the 75th anniversary of VE day. And I just wondered what does that as a, as a moment in history or, or what does today mean to you?
1: I almost, I don't want to say wept, but I had a serious tear in my eye this morning when they were playing um, Churchill's speech from VE Day because I thought what he did after that was to sit down with European leaders and talk about working together so that nothing like this could ever happen again and that's what we did and that was the basis of the european union and now we're walking away and i think that's cripplingly sad
0: Uh, i think that's a sentiment that a great many of our listeners uh, will agree with thank you once again for coming on the podcast
1: you're very welcome thanks for having me
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or YouTube. You can follow us at debatedpodcast on Twitter, like us Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard, or any other episodes, then email us, the at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.